0: I was reading an article recently by someone who was talking about the moments in movies or literature when you just involuntarily burst into tears. Uh, She was calling these moments uh, rally moments and they happen whenever you get to the part in the story where everything seems lost, there's no hope on the horizon, but suddenly salvation appears and wins the day. She mentions two in her article. The first one she talks about is in Uh, the Avengers movie Endgame. Remember at the very end when you have Captain America sort of battered and beaten and he's being charged upon by the hordes of Thanos and at that very moment that he braces himself for his inevitable end, you hear the little voice in his earpiece say, on your left. And suddenly in come his allies to come and win the day. Or another one that I love, Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey. (laughs) You have Chance the Bulldog and Sassy the Cat who have finally made it home. But Shadow, the sweet golden retriever, isn't with them. He couldn't get out of the mud pit. But as the young little Peter looks out, he says something like, Well, he was old, and it was too far. As he turns back to the house, suddenly and then on the horizon, you see the golden head of the dog appearing, and there comes Shadow finally coming home. I love those moments, and I totally connect with the author in loving them. But I've also found it doesn't just happen in movies. It happens in books as well. My wife will attest to what happened to me years ago in my first read-through of the Lord of the Rings. And you've been victims of these sermon illustrations ever since. But in the, in the final scene where the, the deadly evil orcs are you know, sort of uh, working on the last human city in Minas Tirith, it appears that all is lost. The outer ring of the city is burning because the walls have been breached. Even the great wizard Gandalf can't fight off what he knows is coming until... Off in the distance, there's the sound of horns. Suddenly on the horizon, the great host of the riders of Rohan come sweeping down through the enemies and cut them all down. There's a wonderful line in book five that I totally connect with, where it's talking about the little bumbling hobbit, uh, Pippin, and how he went through hearing those horns himself. Tolkien says, When the dark shadow at the gate withdrew, Gandalf sat motionless, but Pippin rose to his feet as if a great weight had been lifted from him, and he stood listening to the horns. And it seemed to him that they would break his heart with joy. And never in years after could he hear a horn blown in the distance without tears coming to his eyes. I still get chill bumps just reading those kinds of lines. But I love the idea of the rally moment, because that's exactly where we are in our study through the book of Genesis and Genesis 12. Because you've got to wrap your mind around the context. The story of Genesis thus far has been a depressing downward spiral of the human race. The human race is getting more evil, more corrupt, more violent. Until such a time as God calls one family to focus in on and to bring hope to the world. But here's the problem. That family is without hope too. Lots of people miss this, but what we find in Genesis 12 just prior is two things. First, as the world is crumbling around them, God chooses Abram's family to carry on the godly line. The problem is he is the son of Terah, and Terah is from from the city of Ur of the Chaldees. Well, we know from ancient Near Eastern sources that Ur was the center of the worship of the moon, of all things. And guess what, Terah, Abram's father's name translated means? The moon. So, authors suggest that this family is just as steeped in idol worship as the rest of the culture around them. And yet, they're going to be the chosen family. And it's even worse because we find out in chapter 11, verse 30, that Abram's wife, Sarai, is barren, she can't have children. Well, that's a problem when you look back at Genesis 3 and you find out that God is going to save the world through the, quote, seed of the woman. Well, how's that going to happen if she's barren? Look, the point is the passage is screaming to us that we are at the end of our rope. All is lost. The chosen family, even, is just like the culture around them, and this woman can't even have children. How is God going to bring about salvation through them? Suddenly, though, Yahweh speaks. Yahweh speaks. It is a powerful rally moment because he comes with a call to Abram and promises him to say, I'm not finished with you yet. We've been looking this semester at this pattern of Christian thinking that comes to us from this book, and what we find out this morning is that God moves when all seems to be lost. And what he does is he gives his people a sense of mission, and encouragement that he's not yet done with them, and that he's going to empower that mission with the notion of grace. Something we're going to look into more further next week. But you're going to see all this through three promises that you get in this text. There's the promise of the land, there's the promise of the blessing, and then the promise of the nations. Let's look at the land first. One of the bigger promises given to any Old Testament patriarch is that God was going to give him land. Look what it says there in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. God says, I'm going to give you a land. You're going to have a place, Abraham, a place where you belong. And of course, in that culture, land was the most stable thing you could own, which is why they spent a lot of time trying to figure out exactly who owned what. But in God's unfolding plan, you then thereafter begin to have this idea of the land become a huge Old Testament theme. It's everywhere. I read one author that said that there are basically four cycles of God's people's relationship with the land. It starts, cycle number one, in the Garden of Eden. I found this fascinating. You can look at the Garden of Eden as if it is a land grant that's given to Adam and Eve. You get descriptions of the garden that are beautiful, yes, but that's not what made the garden special. What made the garden unique, we find, was God's presence there. He walked with his creatures in the cool of the day, whatever that means. In other words, the land was the place where God and man dwelt together. His presence was the point of the Garden of Eden. But of course, you know the story. They rebel against God and they're cast out of his presence when they refuse to live by his definition of good and evil. So what you have then after the Garden of Eden is this great question hanging over the last part of that story, how can we get back into the promised land of God's presence? Cycle number one. Cycle number two, we find of a promise in our text here. God promises to Abram that the land is going to be before you. And thereafter, from from, from the time of this promise in Genesis 12, the land almost becomes a central character in the story of the book of Genesis, even throughout the first five books of the Old Testament, even becoming almost a character of its own. Prophet Jeremiah, in a couple of times, will say things like this in chapter 22. Oh, land, land, hear the word of the Lord. Because of the curse, the land mourns. They, they, they sort of uh, um, characterize the land as if it was a living thing. The point being that to Israel, having that land became an essential part of their covenant with God. It was the way they knew they were still chosen, and that God that they were going to get in God's presence again. <laughs> But, of course, you know what happened in that story as well. Eventually, instead of becoming a blessing to the world around them, they rebel again. They become just like the nations around them, and they are exiled into Babylon and carried away into slavery. So, once again, the question looms, right? How can we get back into a covenant relationship with Yahweh again? That brings us to the third cycle of the land. Because what we see when Ezra and Nehemiah and a bunch of prophets leave Babylon and go back to the promised land, it's a very big deal. We're back. We're back among God's, God's land again. But then we find out very quickly that it's not all that it's cracked up to be. Because just because you're not in the midst of actual slavery doesn't mean that you don't still act like a slave. And just because you're back in the land doesn't mean that you don't act like you're still in exile. That's what Ezra and Nehemiah found. But finally, the fourth cycle is the most important because Jesus comes to end the vicious cycle. Through his life and his death and his resurrection, Jesus is trying to reverse this land-grant exile cycle that people have been going through and saying, I want to give you the land for you to inherit. How did he do that? By announcing the kingdom kingdom. I don't think it's overstating to say, if you really want to sum up everything Jesus had to teach about, it was about the kingdom. It's on his lips on almost every page of the New Testament. Jesus is coming along and saying, I'm bringing a kingdom. I'm bringing a realm, a sphere of influence, which would constitute the place where my people will dwell. So the question becomes, well, where exactly is that, Jesus? Where is that land that we belong? (laughs) Well, he answers it at the end of the book of Matthew, does he not? When he says, after rising from the dead, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. I love this. Now, the whole world is Jesus' kingdom. And the land, if you will, is any territory that has been marked off by the King Jesus as belonging to his people. Four cycles. Now, why am I going into that? Why am I boring you so? Well, for this very reason. I do believe that there are many Christians who are mistakenly uh, uh, preoccupied that there is something still significant about that particular space of Middle Eastern terra firma that we know as the promised land, believing that eventually that actual physical location is going to be significant in world affairs, especially as they believe the coming of Christ looms coming soon. They find themselves getting very anxious about events that are happening in modern day Palestine, as if there is some leftover agenda that God has in store for that land. Um, and while I don't have a ton of time to go into it, hopefully it'll help you understand that our particular theological tradition sees that sort of um, obsession with that particular land as being essentially retrogressive. <laughs> Why? Because Jesus expanded upon the idea of the land and he spiritualized it when he died on the cross and rose again and announced the kingdom. What that means is, is Christians are not looking to the Middle East for guidance on how to do God's will. Because the Christian's stage, sphere of influence, is every place that you find yourself So the first promise that we get to Abraham for land shows us that a Christian is on mission wherever God's providence has landed us. That's where the action is, spiritually speaking, which for us here in little old Oxford, Mississippi, is here because Jesus is Lord over this place. It's time for us to come and submit to his Lordship. That's the mission that's the meaning of the land in that first promise. And it brings me to the second promise, and that is the promise of the blessing. Okay, The second promise is wrapped up in that one simple word, blessing. Verse 2 says, And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. wish we had a much more time to do a deep dive on that word blessing. But I simply want to introduce it by saying this. There is nothing more important for your humanity there's nothing more important for you to be a whole person than to be blessed. This is how the Bible thinks of it. Let me unpack this. And by the way, I'm not talking about what you say before a meal. I'm not talking about what you say when someone sneezes. I'm not even talking about the trite ways in which we say the word blessing when, I don't know, we got the parking space that we wanted at Walmart. Oh, it was such a blessing. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about what one Hebrew scholar says when he said that when, you, when, when the Old Testament talks about giving blessings... There's an assumption that there's an abiding power that spoken words have over our humanity. He says words are not indifferent. Words land on our souls in really powerful ways. And you know this. You've heard me talk about the uh, the world's worst nursery rhyme. Sticks and stones may break my bones. But your words, I will carry around with me for decades after you say them. Is that how it goes? (laughs) Why? Because words, especially when they're given to you by people that you care about, they stick to you. Words operate in your life with a power all their own. Words have the ability to program your own sense of self-appreciation or self-hatred, whichever the case may be. In other words, words get inside you. They form you. In the Old Testament, patriarchs knew this much better than we do, which is one of the reasons why you get all these stories about the patriarchs blessing their children. Huge, big chunks of the Old Testament of them giving a blessing to the children. The whole Jacob and Esau story might be fun to read in the face of this. Tim Keller says this, though, a real blessing involves four things. Number one, an accurate spiritual discernment of who that person really is. Number two, what God has made them. Number three, what gifts he has given to them. And then number four, what you see God making of them when someone gathers all of that up in a wise way and they have and that they use a deep spiritual discernment to tap in to a person's real value they're not just get, that giving of a blessing is not just well wishing when someone blesses you like that you don't ever forget it when a wise and loving and discerning person speaks into your life and affirms you It changes you. It shapes you. It'll encourage you more deeply than anything else can. Everyone in this room, old person or child, needs someone to come into your life and say, there is no one like you. There's no one like you. You are unique. You are gifted. In a word, you are blessed. You are blessed. So apply that to Abram's life. God himself, Yahweh, comes to Abram and affirms his commitment to him. Can you imagine how powerful that must have been? Because think about it. It's only a blessing when a smart person says you're smart. You ever thought about that? Like it's, you, you only believe it when a good person says you're good or when a gifted person says you're gifted. And so God comes to the heir of this idolatrous family, by the way, and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I mean, who greater could have said that to Abram? And I can only imagine what a lethal dose of joy and privilege and honor that that must have been to Abram's heart. Completely recreated him. So, But you've got to see, though, that there's an essential element, though, of grace just rippling through this that will not actually come home to Abram, I would argue, until Genesis 15, which is our study for next week, he said, placing a small commercial in the midst of his sermon. Because don't miss the graciousness. It's obscured by the English, but in Hebrew, the the, the verb, I will, appears seven times in this covenant. Remember, seven's a big deal for Jewish people. That's a whole number. In other words, what the Bible is saying is, is, Abram, I'm not calling you because you're great. This is going to be because I love you and no other reason. You get this all throughout the Old Testament, by the way. Deuteronomy 7, 6, and 8 has this amazing passage this is Moses talking to all of Abraham's children right before they go into the promised land he says for you are a people holy to the Lord your God the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth listen to this it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you are the fewest of all peoples but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to his fathers that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. What a powerful word. God did with Abram what he does for every human soul that has ever received his call. He said, it's not because you are special. It's not because you were discerning. It's not because you were wise or or keen or anything. God loves you because he loves you. And that is the kind of blessing that you were made for. We are all longing for a love that is its own justification. And as it turns out, it's that kind of love that can only prepare you for my last and final point, which is the last promise, the promise of the nations. It's a promise of the nations, Look, here's the simple point that that God continues to make to Abram. God never pulls you in without then pushing you out. I heard one preacher say that it's a little bit like the way a tornado works. Your tornado has this amazing vacuum up inside of it where it literally sucks things up inside of it with incredible power. Like even trees can get sucked up inside a tornado. The construction of the tornado is such that once it's inside, it then gets thrust and blast out from the middle to points unknown. I've seen people express shock to find their cars, you know, miles away from where they used to be when it's being hit by a tornado. In other words, which is a wonderful image for how God blesses his people. Look at verses 2 and 3. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see what God is saying. This is the whole reason why I wanted to preach this sermon right here. It's as if God is saying, look, Abram, I'm going to save the world through your family. I want to teach you, your family, my ways. And I'm going to make your family into a new humanity, a new society of human beings who will walk in my ways, a community of peace a community of justice, a community of grace. That's what's going to mark you out. And all of a sudden, he set in motion, again, his original agenda, where he says every single generation will bear a child who has the messianic seed. One child will rise up in the middle of that family and be the leader of his clan, the head of the family, and he will teach his children God's ways. Then they will pass the faith On to the next generation, the next bearer of the Messianic seed. And on and on and on until one comes who is the seed, who is the prophet, who is the king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So it only as you see Jesus, the ultimate seed of Abram, that the fulfillment came and the blessing goes out to all people which is why you have Paul in Galatians 3, 8, 9 talking this way. He says, look, in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abram, the man of faith. Look, this is the essential point that I'm making. Every Christian has a mission there is a reason why you are here. There is a reason for your life. And it doesn't matter that the fog of distraction and confusion and bent up motives and failed attempts to do so cloud that vision. It doesn't matter Because essentially in the heart of all God's people is a responsibility to do whatever I can in my teeny tiny little microscopic spot in the universe that God has called me to dwell in and to bring blessing, to bring blessing, to bring grace, to right wrongs, to free the oppressed, to give sight to the blind and food to the hungry. That's the mission that Jesus gave his people. But here's the thing to remember. If you pay attention to God's story, you're going to notice, especially in the Old Testament, that there's an evil inertia to being the people of God. Is there not? Throughout the Old Testament, what you find is God's people are supposed to be on this mission to be a blessing to those people, but they never achieve it. One commentator put it this way. He said blessing for the world was a vision that was fitfully seen at first, Later it reappeared in the Psalms and the Prophets and perhaps even at its faintest it always imparted some sense of mission to Israel. But it never became a program of concerted action until Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1. The people of God forgot. They forgot what they were there for. They forgot why God had done a work of grace in their lives. And Paul is saying Jesus came to get Israel, spiritual Israel, which is us, he makes clear, back on the right track. And so what that means is in every generation of God's people, you and I will struggle with the same inertia. I would argue that there is no greater threat that a church can face, especially a growing church, than the temptation to become ingrown. Do you know what I mean by ingrown? You'll know that your church is becoming ingrown when everything that happens in the church is really about you. Somehow you end up making the actions of the church be about you. Somehow it becomes about protecting turf and not letting that particular section of the church take it over. Somehow it becomes about just the infighting. Did you hear about what happened at the meeting the other night? Church grows ingrown when all of a sudden people become hypersensitive to criticism completely unaware of our own emotional processes that we're all going through in trying to uh, uh, circle other people into factions. It ends up happening when all of a sudden we end up engaging in silly little disputes that really don't mean anything. It happens when we begin to pour over the hurt feelings that I have because of them and because of them. Oh, I don't want to talk about them. It's It's ingrown. We've become ingrown if that happens. But believe me, there's only one thing that outgrows an ingrown church, and that is the gospel. Like Paul says, the gospel was preached to Abraham so many years ago, and it still needs to be preached today. Look, isn't there something inside you that would wish that Christ Presbyterian Church would be so busy meeting the needs of those around us that we just didn't have time to get our feelings hurt by, oh my word, did you hear who joined? <laughs> I don't think anybody at the church knows what they're up to. I've done business with those people before. What if we were serving each other so much that that never even came up? We were too busy. But my premise is that you only do that by realizing how God works in the world. And you know what? Newsflash, it ain't what you think it's going to be. God works through the tiny faithfulnesses. You know, I was, I've been a little disappointed at how people have been disappointed, at least in, in uh, some uh, reviews that I've seen, of... Uh, uh, the, the 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 Rings of Power series that came out on Amazon. It's the most expensive uh, TV series ever created. If you got an Amazon Prime account, you can watch it and enjoy it. If you're a Tolkien geek, you'll get a lot out of it. If you're not, you're gonna despise it like everybody else has. One of the reasons why I like the series, though, is because it gives you some wonderful backstory on Gandalf and his relationship to the little hobbits. Um, and you see sort of the birth there, And as I was watching through the series, it reminded me of one of my favorite scenes from the movies. Now, look, I'm not just a giant fan of the movies. They were okay. I do that typical, like, reader's condescension of the movies. Like, well, I don't know if those are that good. But in the first movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, it's one of my favorite scenes that happens when everybody has gathered together to figure out what they're going to do to destroy the one ring of power, which is the source of all evil in all of Middle Earth. And as they're all around there arguing, you get the, the camera sort of makes its way over to little tiny Frodo, who is trying to figure out what he should do. And over his face, there's this realization that rises where he realizes, I, I, I must take this burden. And suddenly he speaks up and he says, I will take it. I will take the ring to Mordor, though I do not know the way. Now, at that moment, Peter Jackson, the director, chose to zoom in on one face and it was Gandalf's. And when he zooms in on Gandalf's face, I see I saw, you know the, the actor there did an amazing job i think expressing on the one hand both joy that he had taken his role but he also winces a little bit because he realizes exactly what it's going to cost little Frodo to actually pull off that task. But he also knows that there's nobody else who's going to be successful at it either. You see the point? the point is is it's not to exalt the little hobbit what it's saying is is there's a flow to history that great boundless intimidating evil will not be overtaken in the big swipes of movements that we think that it will oh if we could just get the right man in the white house oh if we could actually build a larger coalition if we had more money Oh, if we could actually do a great movement for God. And all the while, I think he sits back and is like, actually, I'm already at work. And it's in this tiny little corner down here called Oxford, Mississippi. And nobody saw the little faithfulnesses that you did. Nobody saw it. Maybe even the person who received it didn't know it was you that was acting. But God called me in my little corner to serve And I came in there with one intention, and my intention was to be a blessing. Can I use my words maybe sometimes to speak joy and hope into this person's life? Can I have an action that sort of gives and relieves their suffering just by a tiny amount? Because Tolkien, a Christian, understood that that's how God works. Do not be the one who despises the day of small things, the prophet says. We are a people who love and see the things of small things. And that, my dear Christian friend, is your purpose. That is why you are here, to be a blessing to the nations. And all of that blessing starts right at our front doors, right outside these doors. Who's up for it? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, make us up for it. It's only as your grace moves in us that we will ever be such. So give us a blessing give us the blessing. Lord, bless us. We we don't want to not have because we don't ask. Would you speak into us words of purpose and words of joy, words of grace, that despite where we've been, you still have us. You still are working. You're still moving. And we are not lost. Would you give us that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.